All right. So uh, uh, you all know me uh, decently well. You know uh, uh, what I do for a living. But one of the things you may not know is I get an opportunity to go around the, the, the U.S. at least, I guess into Canada as well, and present sometimes communication seminars. And if you were in one of my communication seminars, one of the things that you would learn from me, probably, is this idea of how important vocabulary is. Language is extremely important if we want to communicate. There's a study that was done that indicates if a speaker uses a word that you don't know, your brain will not register the next seven words that speaker says. Someone uses a word you don't know, for the next seven words, your brain is not thinking about anything except, whoa, I don't know what that word is. I wonder what that word is. And you miss the next seven words on average. It's so important to speak in the language that people use. And if you think about it, language changes. It changes from time. It changes from geography. So we can even use the English language. When I was growing up, the word gay was a reference to what kind of mood someone was in. Remember the song, I feel pretty, oh so pretty, I feel pretty and witty and gay? But today, that word is principally considered a sexual orientation word. It's not just the way time changes words. It's also geography. I had a conversation with our son as I was driving to church today. And we were both lamenting the fact that the Spurs have dropped out of contention for the championship right now. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, no, San Antonio is not dropped out of contention. The San Antonio Spurs will be in the hit feet thick of the basketball playoffs. Well, that's true. But when Will and I were talking about the Spurs, we were talking about the Tottenham Hotspurs, a British football group that we follow, who have dropped out of contention until they beat Chelsea in the next game. But even saying we were talking about football may make you think that we're talking about the NFL when we were talking about the Premier League. Words have different ideas and orientations based upon time, but based upon geography as well. Then just based upon interest. I mean, we can talk about some things. I can throw out some legal terms for you that would make perfect sense if I were speaking in a legal setting. But for many of you, you'd say, well, I don't have a clue what he's talking about. You know, if, if you were a property lawyer, and I started talking about incorporeal hereditaments, you would understand it fine. But if I were to use that as an illustration in this class, this point John made is just like incorporeal hereditaments. I'm sure you can connect the dots. And I move on, most of you will be lost. I took property law, I'd be lost. I purposely tried to forget incorporeal hereditaments, other than the name. It sounds really cool. So, this is why Alistair McGrath said when he was here, and is such a fanatic about us learning to teach God in the language of the audience. Figure out who your audience is and speak their language. 
Isn't that common sense? It's common sense that you want to speak in the, the vernacular that people are accustomed to and that people understand, that makes sense to people. So I'm convinced that we see the... the, Oh, whoops, that's where I was supposed to put that. Sorry, my mistake. Language changes over time and geography, but we've already gone through that. So forget that slide. Let's move on. Okay, so here's the reason that I make this point. This is part two of where we started last week. I pulled up a NASA map of the Mediterranean Sea and the countries that are right around it. Now, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, grew up and lived principally probably for 50 or 60 years, maybe 65 years of his life, in and around Judah, Judea, in and around Jerusalem and Galilee, in and around Israel. But somewhere around 65 to 70 A.D., He moved, and he moved over to Ephesus, which is on the coast of Turkey. In the process of making that move, John began to minister in the church at Ephesus. Now, this is the same church Paul had written Ephesians to, but Paul at this point is already dead. So John moves over there after, John, after Paul is dead. And John begins to minister not just to the church at Ephesus, but to the churches in Asia Minor, in that area of Turkey. And he does this. What we've got to realize is there is a huge chasm and gulf between Ephesus and Jerusalem. There are so many differences, I'll pull out a few, that we just need to keep in our brain as we look at this lesson. First of all, they spoke a different language. The Greek language was the predominant language of trade and everyday activity in Asia Minor. Where John grew up, among the population that John lived in, the Jewish population... It would have been Aramaic or Hebrew. Now, those are not, Greek and Hebrew are not just, well, they're closely related, like English and Spanish. No, they're not even remotely closely related. They're as diverse as English and Hebrew. They're wildly different languages. So you've got a language shift. You've got a culture shift as well. John grew up in a Jewish community. John becomes a Christian with the inception of the church. But the church in Jerusalem in that area was by and large a Jewish entity. And the cultural differences between that and the thriving city of Ephesus. Ephesus was no small town. Ephesus was to Jerusalem what Lubbock is to shallow water. It's, it was a huge metropolis, or what Houston is to Conroe. And there's no comparison between them. So you've got a different language, a different culture. You've got a different religion. Most of the Ephesians worshipped the temple of Artemis. It was this masterful wonder that was there. 
and you've got a whole different culture, whole different religious terms being used. People grow up knowing everything different. Becky told me one time that one of the reasons she so wanted our children to learn Spanish at an early age from some native Spanish speakers is because if you come to Spanish as a high school student or as a college student or as an adult, there's an aspect of the language you miss out on because you don't learn the nursery rhyme equivalents. You don't learn the little sing-song things that you learn as a baby or as, an, as, a, as a newborn or as a, an elementary school child if you're growing up with Spanish as your principal language. That's true in any language. And when you grow up in a Greek culture with a Greek language, with a Greek religion, you learn things differently and you have a hold of things differently. By the way, when we get to Paul, you know Paul uniquely had one foot solidly in Greek culture and language and one foot solidly in Jewish. He was the perfect man for the job God gave him. But those lessons are to come. The worldview, just the way you see life. The idea of a Sabbath rest didn't exist with the Greeks, didn't exist in Ephesus. The idea of the work day, totally different. There are so many aspects that are different. If you ever have a chance to get in that area of the country, take time to go see the ruins of of Ephesus. The ruins are amazing. You can go down the streets of Ephesus and they had streets that were paved. You can still see where the chariot ruts have been formed from chariot wheels going over them for hundreds of years. You can go into the amphitheater where Paul was hauled in. And you can stand up at the front and talk. You can sit in the seats where the people sat in judgment on him. You can even go find the the, the library. Or the latrine. Where was the library? Okay, for some reason, the library flashed on there. They do. that, that That is a public latrine from the days of Paul and John. There's a marvelous early church story of John being in in one of the rest areas, public rest areas, when a heretic walked in and he fled out as a 90-year-old man goes running out because he didn't even want to be in the same facilities with him. You can see all of these things in this city that also had Paul's letter. By the time John gets there, the city's got Paul's letter and the churches have been studying and reading and sharing Paul's letter. The letter to Ephesians, almost all scholars agree, is called an encyclical letter. That's a word that means you cycle it around to people. It was a letter meant to be passed on. It's a letter for study groups. It's a letter for sermon material. It's a letter to be read in one complete setting. It's a letter to be read verse by verse and talk about what did Paul mean. And to a church that doesn't have the entire Bible assembled, a letter written specifically to them 
and those in their area had to mean so much to them. And that's what, that's what the Ephesians did have in addition to these things. And in comes John. And for decades, John ministers as an old man in this church. He teaches. He tells the stories. And he is asked to go ahead and provide some additional gospel material. Early church history says, you're the last living apostle. Would you please write another gospel? Matthew's been written. Mark's been written. Luke's been written. We don't need to hear those stories again. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all hone in on the last part of Jesus' ministry. So early church history says John was asked, would you write some about the early part of Jesus' ministry as well? Can you fill us in some more stories? Can you put into writing something so when you're dead and gone, we, the church, will still have it? And John did so. Did John actually write it himself? Probably not. He probably had a secretary who wrote it for him as he spoke it. Did he speak it in Greek? Maybe, maybe not. He might have spoken it in Semitic language, but he probably had his Greek conversant by then and spoke it in Greek. But he still had a very Hebrew way of thinking. That's apparent when you, you translate the text. A lot of the Greek's uh, vocabulary and stuff, uh, Greek punctuation, syntax, a lot of it is written in a way that's very Hebrew, more so than Greek. So what we did last week is we started by taking this idea of John, John writing to an Ephesian church that had the letter to the Ephesians and basically looking at it as a communication issue. The communication issue is pretty simple. Do we see John speaking in the language that the people knew? Through the Holy Spirit was John doing the right, good communication technique of using vocabulary and language and ideas that were already known and important to the people. That, that's the exercise that we started. And I started it, uh, as I told you last week, because the lawyer in me just wanted to see whether or not our theories and church history connect. Whether or not the text validates what's common sense. Because common sense says, if John was writing this to a community that had the letter from Paul, that treasured Paul's letter for several decades, John would write in language and ideas that, that those people knew. So I went about checking it out. Now, some of you may ask, so why do we care what language he used? What difference does that make to me? Just give me John and let me understand it. Just give me Ephesians and let me understand. I don't care who gobbledygook. Okay. Fair question. Fair question. So I just want to give you a couple of reasons why it matters to me. If these matter to you, great. If not, eh. Next week we start Acts. First of all, I do think it's important it confirms history. 
I like the fact that we can trace back who we are and what we believe, and we can do it not just through the Bible, but we can do it through accurate records the church has kept because it mattered to the church. That we're not just here in 2013 wondering blindly, gee, I wonder what happened over the last 1970 years. We can, like links in a chain, look back in a way that has academic integrity. Number two, I love the way this shows the way the Holy Spirit works. Because here's the Holy Spirit not only preserving Scripture for us today, writing and preserving Scripture, but doing it in a way that shows the, the, the majestic scope of, of, of it, it just, he did it for them too. He, the Holy Spirit didn't just put this Scripture together for the church of our generation. It was first and foremost a ministry to those people who got it. The Holy Spirit's work just doesn't go out of date. But it doesn't mean it's, out, it's not out of date for us today. It wasn't out of date for them then. It wasn't some futuristic sci-fi written in language to be understood in 2013, but totally at a loss to the people of their day. No, it was written to minister to people of their day, understood by the church to be Holy Scripture, and secured for the church all through the working of the Holy Spirit behind it. I love that. Number three, I think this gives us insight. I think when we understand John's writing in language the Ephesians already had, it helps us understand some of what John wrote. Because we see some emphasis he makes. We see where he takes, almost like he's taking Ephesians and underlining part of it. And saying, hey, let me tell you where this came from. Let me tell you where Paul got this. I also like it because it gives us focus. It shows things that were so important to the church, not only at the time Paul wrote, but that were important to the church decades later when John's ministering to them. And finally, the lawyer in me. I like it because there are a lot of people who don't believe in the integrity of Scripture, who are hypercritical of it, who want to say, oh, the Gospel of John must have been written you know, totally apart from the rest of the Bible. Uh, uh, Ephesians was, was not really treasured by the church in Ephesus. It was, uh, it was just sort of a letter that was written not by Paul, but by the school of Paul. And uh, just sort of grabbed by the church. And the church just kind of forgot that it wasn't authentic. But it's a forgery. No, this all fits together really nicely. So I, that's why I care. Having said that, we're not going to have time to go through all of the things I've put in your written lesson. I'm not even going to try. I don't even have all of them in the PowerPoint. I'm not sure we'll get to everything I've got in here. We'll see. But I want you to have a chance to take that with you and look at it. Pull out your Bibles this week and just spend some time. Just take one of the sections. Say, hey, I'm going to work on this section. Link it up. See what you see. Talk to your friends, spouse, neighbors, co-workers, children, parents, whomever you talk to about spiritual matters. Discuss it and let it be that for you. All right, so here's what I've done. I've taken different vocabulary words that are uniquely used by John 
and the church at Ephesus, a la Ephesians. I've taken other ideas that seem to have been ideas unique to John and also ideas in use at the church in Ephesus. And I did that by going through Ephesians carefully in the Greek, comparing it to John, the Gospel of John. Keeping in mind the other Gospels as well. Because there are some things that Ephesians has, that the Gospel of John has, but the other Gospels have them also. That didn't seem to be an indicator to me of some relationship. So I've just taken the ones that are an indicator. Let's start with this. The prince of this world. The prince of this world. Now this idea of being the prince, Satan is the prince of this world. Prince or ruler in the Greek, we get the word ark from it. It's an archon idea. An arche, uh, it's, it's, it's the idea of a monarch is a one ruler. Um, so ark is your key Greek word. That's the stem. So the prince or the ruler of this world. Let's see it in, John, in, in, uh, in Ephesians. Ephesians 2.2. 2. Paul says the following. Okay. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Following, and these are written in parallel in the Greek. It's the same thing. He's saying the same thing. The course of this world is the prince of the power of the air. It is the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. So who was this prince of the power of the air, this prince of this world? Satan. And it's clear to anybody who's reading Ephesians, it's Satan. And so Paul's writing Ephesians and he's telling them, you know, beware of the prince of this world. Now, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll see Satan called the prince or the ruler, but he's called always the prince of demons, the ruler of demons, Beelzebub, the ruler of demons, is the way Matthew puts it. John doesn't. John does not call him the ruler of demons. John calls him, let's go to John 12, 31 through 32. Jesus says the following. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. That word ruler, same word, prince. The prince of this world, the ruler of this world. The same thing that Paul was saying, exact same thing, exact same word. You don't find it anywhere except in Paul and in John. The idea that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, the prince of this world. It's not found anywhere else. It's unique to them. And it's unique to them for a reason. It was the language of the Ephesians. John spoke in their language. And it was important for John, for them to understand that when Jesus pronounced his judgment on Satan... He wasn't simply judging Satan in the demonic world, which is what they might have thought if they only had the other Gospels. 
But John's gospel lets them know that Satan, who is the prince of this world, who is the spirit at work among sons of disobedience, who is the prince of the air, who's all of those things they knew about from Ephesians. When Jesus judged Satan, Jesus judged all of that. All of it's judged. It's what enables what Pastor Fleming said this morning to take place. If you're a believer, you're set free. If you're a believer, you can say no to sin. If you're a believer, you are not bound to this world as a son of disobedience. It's, it's, it's what John's got. John uses it not just in John 12. He uses it in John 14. He uses it in John 16. John uses Paul's phrase. The people understood it. Let's look at a second one. Wrath as a present concept. As a present concept. Let me tell you why I put it that way. In Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, Jesus tells his followers and he tells the crowds around him that they need to be prepared to flee or prepared for the wrath that is to come. Wrath in the future. The wrath that is to come. And wrath is always spoken of as something that's coming in the future. The wrath of God in the future. But if you look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3, and 4. If we go back to this again. Picking up from where he just was. The spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Just, I want you to just take a moment. I've got it up here for a reason. Stare at it for a moment. We're going to read it one more time. Because I want you to see how John takes what Paul says and uses it. We were, by nature, children of wrath. Orge in the Greek. Like the rest of mankind. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Here's the picture. Paul says, here we are, and this is dead in our trespasses. This is children of wrath. This is the wrath of God. This is death. This is where we all were until God took us out of there because of his love and the work of Christ. And so now we are no longer under wrath and we are alive in Christ. And we are blessed, not under wrath. All right, you see that? You with me? And the reason I say you see that you're with me is because this is, do you remember John's conversation in John 3 with Nicodemus? 
Nicodemus says, what must I do? You know, in, in essence, you know, and, and Jesus says, unless you're born anew, born again, born from above. Nicodemus says, how am I going to climb back in my mother's womb? And then John comments on it. John's comments, D.A. Carson's coming this month, later this month. He says that, that John 3.16 is part of John's comments, not out of the words of Jesus. I don't know if he's right or not. But either Jesus says or John comments, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whomever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. We all know that verse by and large, right? It's the last verse, which is definitely John's commentary that I want you to see in that chapter and in that passage. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about the future coming wrath of God. But John uses Paul's Ephesians language to talk about the wrath of God remaining on them. If you go back to the diagram we drew off of Ephesians, we could have drawn this same diagram off of John. That here we are. We are dead. We are in, under wrath. But if we believe in the Son, which is Christ, the one who so loved the world he gave, then we are no longer dead, but we are alive, eternal life. And we're blessed with that. If we don't believe, John says, on those that don't, the wrath of God remains. Because they never leave. Now, somebody who's persnickety might say, you've just said there's a contradiction in the Bible. Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about a future wrath. Escape the wrath that is to come. Whereas John and Paul talk about, you got wrath right now. Well, that's not a contradiction. Yes, you're under wrath right now. And if you're smart, you'll escape the wrath that is to come. Because there's going to come a day where that wrath, there's no exit from it anymore. It's a now and a future wrath. The wrath that's coming is a wrath that's already incurred that you're a child of right now. And if you want to escape that wrath that's coming, you escape it now by believing in Jesus Christ. And that's the point that John is making, which is the point Paul was making, which is the point Jesus made. So, wrath has a present concept. Here's a shocker. This stunned me when I was doing the research. Irene, Irene, Irene is the Greek word for peace. And it's a word we're familiar with as believers. We know where Paul says to the Philippians that you have a peace that passes understanding. You know, peace is a big word. He uses it a lot in Ephesians. You go back and you look at the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they really only use peace in the sense of a greeting. The, the Hebrew word peace 
could also be a greeting, shalom. It could be hello, it could be goodbye. But it could be much more than that as well. Because the idea behind shalom was a contentment, a satisfaction with life, a recognition that no matter what's going on, it will all be okay. And so you can have some, some simple quietness in your spirit. That's shalom peace. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus will say, go in peace. Or, you know, don't, you know, if, if you go into a town, take your peace. But if they won't accept you, then take your peace with you. Shake the dust off your shoes. But the idea of us having peace with God, the idea of us having a peace in our heart, the idea of us having a community of peace, where I'm at peace, you're at peace. You only find that in Paul and John. It's something Paul wrote about, and it's something John explained in his gospel. So you can look at those passages. How are we doing time-wise? Yeah, let's keep going on this one. All right, so you can look at those passages, passages like Ephesians 2, 14 through 17. Um, I may even go to 4, 3 instead. In fact, I may go to 623. Now, let's go to the first one. Okay, you can look at all of these. I'm just trying to figure out which one's the best example. All right, so 2, 14 through 17. Jesus himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. He has made us one. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's the wall of hostility between us and God. He's done it by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. This Peace, this peace between us and God, between us and each other, between Jew and Gentile. This peace has come from Jesus Christ. He himself is our peace. Now, you've been in Sunday school for 20 years before John writes his gospel. And you don't have a lot to study. So you've been studying Ephesians like it's it's not like once every five years. It's like once a month. So once a month for 20 years, you've been hearing this preached. Uh, Jesus is our peace. They've been writing songs about it. He himself is our peace. He broke down the wall of hostility. And it's deep in your fiber of your understanding and your theology and your doctrine. And along comes John. And when John is writing and, and they're putting into Greek what Jesus had to say... John does it in a way that takes this same peace word and doesn't merely talk about it as a greeting. But we'll talk about it, uh, John 14, 27. Jesus says the following, John 14, 27. Peace, I leave with you. My peace I give you. Paul said Jesus himself is our peace. 
Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. My peace I leave with you. I'm leaving you a contentment with life. I'm leaving you an ability to live knowing that the end will be okay. I'm leaving you with something that in the midst of your crisis will give you a sense of stability and confidence and direction. Could it be any more clear that John is speaking in the language of Paul? Well, maybe. Here's why. Let's go back to the... uh, 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 Yes, you knew it. All of us have times of suffering. Times of tribulation. There's this Greek word for suffering or tribulation. Go back over here again. It's the Greek word thalipsis. In English, we would write that T-H-L-I-P-S-I-S. Thalipsis. It's a pretty good word, isn't it? Thalipsis. Oh, uh, uh, Hearn, where are you? Now, Dale sent me some, uh, what was your joke? Go ahead. See, those who were sitting over there really liked that joke. The guy said, what now? He thought philipsis was an elongated curve. Yeah, instead of ellipse, philipsis. Okay. Circle. An, circle. Oh, that's how it was funny. Okay, let me try it again. I thought philipsis was an elongated circle. See, yeah, it's a little better. It's in the delivery. Sorry, Dale. Um, Thalipsis. When I was a a, a Greek student, uh, our professor used this to teach us the the sense of that term. And then I'll tell you where he got it from. If you took a rope and you did that with the rope, and you took a second rope and you did that with the second rope, and you started pulling the second rope that direction while you pulled the first rope the opposite direction. Everything in the middle would start to feel a lot of pressure, wouldn't it? That is the root of the Greek word thalipsis. It's that area in the middle. It means being pressed in from every side. Have you ever felt like life is just pressing you in at every side? I mean, you, you can go eat food, but it, it, it feels good to eat food, but it doesn't really help with the pressure. doesn't help with what you're suffering. It doesn't help with what you're, you're, the, the tribulation you face. You can go to sleep, but you don't sleep well. You, you have, you, 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 you've got something that's weighing on you so heavy that nothing seems to move the burden. That's a suffering, that's a tribulation, that's a thalipsis. That's a word that Paul writes about. That's a word John writes about. You don't really read it in the other Gospels. So it's another word that's unique to Paul and to John. Let me show you where Paul says it. Paul says it in Ephesians 3, 11 through 13. In Ephesians 3, he had taught this to the Ephesians. 
Paul says, I ask you, now Paul's writing this from prison. I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. There's purpose behind it. Paul's in the midst of suffering. You didn't want to be in a Roman prison. They didn't feed you. You had to have someone bring you food. They didn't clothe you. They didn't give you medical care. You were just kind of locked up. And if you died, you were thrown away. And if you had someone who would visit you while you're in prison, which is something Jesus taught his disciples to do, you might have some food. Paul is suffering And he says, it's for your sake, it's for the sake of the gospel, but it's your glory. It's a good thing. Hey, don't lose heart. Don't let my tribulation, my thalipsis, my suffering cause you to lose sleep. I'm okay with it. Let me show you where John uses that word to translate something Jesus said. It's John 16, 33. One of my favorite passages in the Bible. John 16, 33. Jesus is about to be crucified. He's about to be betrayed. This is his last big speech to his apostles. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have, oh, irene, peace. Same peace word. That's unique to Paul, unique to John. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have philipsis. It's translated tribulation instead of suffering, but it's the same word. In the world, you will have tribulation. You'll have suffering. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, if you understand this word tribulation is the same as suffering, philipsis, exact same word. He says, take heart, I've overcome the world. Look at what, let's write it down. I want to make sure you see how this is related. So John says, quotes Jesus, let's get it over here. John quotes Jesus saying, you will have tribulation. You will have suffering. You will have, you're all going to learn your Greek here, thalipsis. You know, you got someone who's causing you trouble. You say, why are you such a thalipsis? You will have thalipsis, but take heart, be encouraged. You'll have peace in Jesus. You'll have thalipsis, but take heart. Do you see that in John and Jesus? In the world, you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Now, the reason I ask you if you see it there, I want to go back to the Ephesians passage again. And look at the Ephesians passage. Paul says, we're going to put Jesus and John right next to it. Paul says, don't lose heart. Take heart. I'm suffering. I'm having philipsis. Take heart. Jesus told me I would have philipsis. Take heart. 
Because Jesus has overcome the world. And in Jesus, there's a peace that passes all understanding. And it doesn't matter what you're suffering and how you're suffering. In Jesus, there is peace. Because no suffering happens without God working together for good in the midst of it. If we go back to the um, PowerPoint, I won't go into as much detail, but let me just cover a couple of these others. Entice you to read them on your own. Paul says in Ephesians 2.8 that we have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. It's something as Christians and believers we know. We pray to God the Father through Jesus Christ in his name, right? We know we have access to the Father through Jesus Christ. Do you know why we know it? Because we can read it in Paul's letter to the Ephesians or we can read it in John's gospel. Because John says the same thing, using the same approach, the same terminology, in ways different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, John does it in Paul's language to the Ephesians. It's incredible. What else? The role of the Spirit in Revelation. Now, here's your teaser for next week. I'm not even going to cover this. You can read it in your book. But next week, we're going to start the gospel, the gospel, (laughs) the book of Acts. Some call it Acts of the Apostle. And it can be called Acts of the Apostles. But it can also be called Acts of the Holy Spirit. So next uh, Sunday, where your Pentecostal best, we're going to be doing some... We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk about the Holy Spirit next Sunday. All right? Skip that. Ephesians implications on John 1. This is amazing. If, if you take a church that has lived and breathed Ephesians 3. You take a church that's had Ephesians 3, 9, and 10, where Paul talked about to, to him who's the unsearchable riches of Christ to bring light for everyone, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. You read these passages of John, I mean of of Paul, where Paul's talking about the way God created all these things. And he had a plan of Jesus in that creation, hidden for the ages. Then you go back and read John's gospel, where John says, yeah, what Paul said. In fact, Jesus was the Word and was there at creation. And Jesus was God. And when all of this plan was being done, Jesus was there, planning it got tremendous implications. You can go look at... Um, oh, this is, this is amazing to me. Christ in you. You don't get it in Matthew. You don't get it in Mark. You don't get it in Luke. Paul writes about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul writes to the Ephesians that you have Jesus in you. And the gospel you'll get that from is the gospel of John. Where Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will come. And one of the things the Holy Spirit will do is convict you of the fact that Jesus is in you. Jesus says, just as I'm in the Father, I'm in you. And you're in me. Read through the lesson and look at it. Last thing I'll tell you, and then there's still a few others that I didn't have time to put into the PowerPoint or I knew I wouldn't have time to cover, I should say. 
Um, agape. Agape love. Something most of us are familiar with. You know, the Greeks had a lot of different words for love. I read in the latest issue of Runner's World the comment, if the Eskimos truly have 30 words for snow, why don't runners have 30 words for pain? You know, because there just should be so many different kinds of pain. I got this pain, I got this pain, I got this pain. <laughs> um, their Greeks had a lot of different words for love. And there's a verb to love, agapao, which is off of agape. Matthew, Mark, and Luke will use the verb to love. But over 90% of the time, the noun agape is used in the Bible. It's used by either Paul or John. John in his gospel or John in his epistles. Paul used it 78 times. John used it 30 times. I think outside of that, there may be like five or six or seven other times in the entire Bible it's used. This noun of agape love. Paul spoke their language. All right. There's more. You can do it. You can go back and read it. I want to tell you, I got a good email from uh, one of the, the stalwarts in this class who's been a friend of mine for, oh, heavens. Stan, how long have I known your wife? 30 years? 40 years? 50 years? Except you're not that old. Excuse me, that's me. Um, I've known Gail for a long, long time. And uh, she's an incredible student and teacher of the word. And she wrote me an, an email this week. I don't think she'd mind me saying this, saying, um, okay, I'm sorting through the logic of all of this. And what's my answer going to be when someone says, hey, maybe Jesus never said any of this stuff. John just wrote it to, off of Paul's epistle. That's a really good question. It's so interesting that it fits so well. But here's the reason that one of the reasons, aside from the integrity of Scripture, here's one of the reasons I'd give to the critic who may ask, Gail, you or me? Well, hey, doesn't that just mean John just took Ephesians and hand wrote a gospel to fit it? Made that stuff up? No. One of the words that Paul uses over and over and over in Ephesians is a distinction. It's the word dunamis. Dunamis. It means power. And I mean, he talks about it, and it's an important word in Ephesians. It's a drumbeat theme to Ephesians. It's, it's a bass note that carries all the way through the song of Ephesians. It is there. John doesn't use it once. The other Gospels use it all the time, but he always uses exousia. Uh, 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 exousa, a different Greek word for power. Probably because he's, he's taking it from a different Hebrew. Hebrews had like 80 gazillion words for power. So it may be a Semitic mindset thing. But anybody who's sitting there just trying to duplicate Paul's letter would certainly grab power and stick it in a lot of places using Paul's word. And he doesn't. So it's something that's a very genuine read. It, 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 it has all the marks of authenticity that we would expect for the story that we've been told by history and by Scripture. And it's a wonderful thing. So here are your points for home. And what I've done this week, like last week, is tried to grab a phrase out of Paul's letter to the Ephesians and a mirroring phrase out of the Gospel of John. Paul said in Ephesians that Jesus himself is our peace. Jesus says in John, my peace I give you. 
Isn't that a marvelous thing? A shalom peace in the midst of everything that life throws at us. I don't know why I find it so hard to dwell in that peace. But that's my commitment to myself. I want to find the peace of God. In the midst of the world's craziness, I want to inhabit this peace that Jesus gave to me. And I hope you'll join me in getting better at dwelling in it. Paul said, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering, my thalipsis. Jesus said, in the world you'll have thalipsis, suffering, tribulation, but take heart. Amen. Amen. Yes, there's suffering. Yeah, there's stuff that's not the way I'd write the book. There are things that aren't the way I'd like them to be. And there are times where I can't sleep the way I'd like to sleep because I'm concerned about something. But I'm going to take heart. And I'm going to find that peace of God. Jesus' peace. By delivering to Him whatever it is and trusting He will work it out for His glory, I just have to endure it. Which I can, knowing what the end will be and having Him endure it with me. Last point for home. Paul said, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This is his love usage, agape. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. John said, greater agape has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. I just want to say thank you to God. And so with that, can I pray over you and we're through for today. Lord, thank you for this time we've had to study the Gospel of John. Thank you for enlightening our hearts, for the work of your Spirit, not only in, in securing and producing Scripture, but in, in helping us understand it and apply it. Lord, I pause now just to ask your blessings on all of the folks here, those in Philipsis, those in need of your peace, those in need of your love. Would you bless them? And keep them in your care. Make your face shine upon them. Be gracious to them. In the name of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.